Well, good to see you all again this morning. Great to see you if you're a visitor. It's uh, just a great to see you, and thanks for coming this morning on this uh, special Sunday. You should have uh, on your seat the bulletin. On the back of the bulletin, there's an outline as well with all the verses and the key points that we're looking at today. So if you want to make use of that, you can. It's there for you if it's helpful for you. A few years ago, I accompanied a friend of mine to her British citizenship ceremony. She was becoming a a British citizen on that day, and it was a really nice ceremony, and it gave a real sense of occasion for the whole group of people from all over different countries in the world who were choosing to become citizens of the United Kingdom of Great Britain on that day. Before the group were able to make their pledges, they had had to go through citizenship classes and take some exams and so on in order to learn what it really meant to become a citizen of the UK, to learn about the culture, the history and the values and all that kind of thing. It was back in 2004 that the then government decided that it would be wise for applicants to have uh, citizenship classes to attend and to go through, but also just to have a, uh, a ceremony to give people the sense of occasion that they were joining something that was worthwhile and there was something significant about what they were doing. But there's been much debate over what it actually means to be British. And probably if I asked every single person at this point, what does it mean to be British, you would all come up with different answers, and that's because of all, for all different factors in our lives. Does it mean to be white and Anglo-Saxon? Is it therefore, is it a race thing? Or is it about being born in the UK? Is that what makes you British? Um, is it about adopting certain standards and values, fair play? Like in cricket, you have to be just like cricket to to be British. All of these different kind of things. Does it mean to buy into the history of the nation and to uh, be proud of the empire, of kings and queens and history and all that kind of thing? Is is that what it means to be British? Recently, the government listed what it calls British values. And these values, they've come up with our democracy, the rule of law, Individual liberty and mutual respect for and tolerance of those with different faiths and beliefs and those without faith. And the reality is that there's a great deal of disagreement about what it means to be British. Different people will tell you different things depending on their own political persuasions, their own background, their upbringing and, all, and, and their culture. All sorts of different reasons. When Jesus began to teach and preach 2,000 years ago, he came announcing some good news. He came announcing and telling people about a kingdom that was unique and special. Not about the United Kingdom of Britain, of Great Britain, but about God's kingdom. This was a special kingdom, a unique kingdom, a kingdom that would change the world. Matthew 4 verse 23 says this, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The kingdom that Jesus preached about was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And it was good news, it was important and people needed to hear about it and people still need to hear about God's kingdom today. I think if I was living in one of the many, many trouble spots around the world this morning and someone came and told me that in countries like Britain, there are many other countries too, but countries like Britain, there is access to free health care, free education, there's freedom of religion, you can gather like this without the police arresting you, you can get uh, housing and water and food and all these kind of things. I think, I would think that is really good news. That is fantastically amazing good news, and I would like to go and be part of that. I would like access to that. I'd like to be part of that kingdom. And that's why so many people like to come and live in the UK. When Jesus began to tell people about the good news of the kingdom of heaven, people began to get really excited. 
They wanted to know more. They wanted to know more about what Jesus was telling them because what they were hearing was good news. It was exciting. It was different. It was new. And as crowds of people came to hear him talk about this kingdom, they didn't always understand it too well. But they heard enough to realize that they wanted to know more. They wanted to know more about this kingdom. What were the values? What does it mean to join this kingdom? What was God's kingdom? And when we get to Matthew 5, we read the edited highlights of a sermon that Jesus delivered to those that were investigating what it meant to belong to this kingdom. It's not the whole sermon. I think Jesus said much more than we get. We get the edited highlights. But if you read from Matthew 5 to the end of Matthew 7, you'll discover how Jesus expects his followers, the citizens of his kingdom, to live. It's like a citizenship class. And Jesus tells those that want to be part of this kingdom, part of his kingdom, part of God's kingdom... He tells them how they can become a citizen, and then he tells them what's expected of them as they live as his subjects. And over the next few months here at Regent, we're going to be working our way through this great sermon. It's often called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says that Jesus went up on a mountainside. That's kind of a Greek uh, sort of figure of speech. It wasn't really a mountain. It was a hillside, but Jesus went up on a hillside, and he began to teach. And so this is called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be working our way through this over these coming weeks and months here at Regent Stewart's going to pick up the next part uh, next Sunday for us. But Jesus begins this amazing sermon with a little introduction, an introduction really which is a summary of everything else that he's going to say in the following chapters. So let's read this introduction. It's, It's Matthew 5, 1 to 12. That's what we're going to look at today. But we're going to start just for a bit of context in Matthew 4, verse 23. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me if you want to, or you can just listen. That's fine. So we're going to read from Matthew 4, uh, verse 23, and then to the end of the chapter, then we're going to go into Matthew 5, which is the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read down to verse 12. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were born before you. The passage that we've just read is often called the the Beatitudes. And And the reason for that is because the Latin word for blessed is beatus, hence the Beatitudes. But what does the word blessed mean? Well, blessed means to be approved and to find approval. That's really what it means at its heart. It means to be approved and to find approval. And in a context like this in the Bible, it means to find approval with God. So you can write that on your outline if you want. Blessed means to find approval with God. 
And in this passage, Jesus presents us with a whole list of things which cause us to find approval with God, to be called blessed or blessed in the past tense. Blessed is the present tense. So these are things which cause us to find approval with God. Blessed are those, and then Jesus explains and unpacks what that means. So the Beatitudes, these list of things, are a summary of the kind of life a person who is in the kingdom of God lives. They're they're the description of what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. In other words, to be a follower of Jesus. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew records it, it's the same thing, it's different to political kingdoms like the UK. We live in a a political kingdom. We have a a king or a queen currently. We have an area of land with borders. It's clearly defined and so on. But the kingdom of God isn't territorial. It's it's, it's not territory-based. It's not a physical thing. The kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God exists wherever God is ruling and reigning in somebody's heart. So if God is ruling and reigning in your heart this morning, the kingdom of God is within you and is flowing and is at work through you and in you. All those that have eternal life, in other words, all those that have trusted in Jesus, belong to the kingdom of God. But those who don't have eternal life, those who've not trusted in Jesus, are outside of God's kingdom. It's like you know, being in this country or being outside of it in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense. We're in God's kingdom if we've trusted in Jesus. If we've not trusted in Jesus and he's not ruling and reigning in our hearts, we're outside of God's kingdom. So the kingdom of God exists wherever he rules and reigns in people's hearts and lives. It's his saving reign in people's lives. And the kingdom of God has two aspects to it. And, and Lucy really touched on this as she was leading worship earlier. There's a future aspect of the kingdom which is yet to happen. We long for, as followers of Jesus, we long for and we look for Jesus' return when he will come and rule and reign and when he will bring peace and he will bring an end to violence and and, and sin and he will deal once and for all with those things. And he will rule and reign forever. And those of us who've trusted in him will get to be in that physical moment of the kingdom at that time. But that's still in the future. We long for it, we look for it, we pray for it, we sing for it. But right now we're in the midst of situation that's a bit different. At the moment, the the kingdom of God is spiritual. It's in our hearts. It's Christ's reign in and through those who have eternal life, those who've asked Jesus into their lives. So there's a a now, but there's also a future aspect to it. We're living in the midst of it right now as, as God is in our hearts if we've trusted in Jesus. But we also have a future aspect to it which will be more fully revealed when Jesus comes again. He said, if I go, I will come again. It's a promise that Jesus gives. So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a now and there's a not yet. There's a future aspect to God's kingdom. So the Beatitudes, these list of, of things Jesus says that find approval with God, blessed are those that, and he goes on to list them. These Beatitudes, as they're called, are a summary of the kind of lives that citizens of the kingdom of God, those that have eternal life through Jesus, it's a summary of how they should live. So what kind of lives does Jesus want his subjects? What what kind of lives does the king want his subjects to live in his kingdom? What kind of material does Jesus go through in this great citizenship class? I've looked into some of the uh, questions you get asked if you're uh, joining the UK, if you're becoming a British citizen. Citizen, and, and I like history, and I know lots about British history, but I, it's quite embarrassing when I realize how few questions I could actually answer if I was trying to become a British citizen. But Jesus actually spells it out really clearly as we're going to go through these next two chapters in Matthew 5 to 7. What does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? What does God expect? 
He tells us how, we're going to look at that in a minute, how to join this kingdom, but then he tells us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus starts and he finishes this citizenship class, this Sermon on the Mount, with spelling out the, the conditions of entry, the entry uh, qualifications, if, if you like, to get into the kingdom. You can't be part of God's kingdom unless you experience something supernatural in your life. There has to be what the Bible calls a, a kind of supernatural change. It means to be born again. You can't get into God's kingdom unless you've experienced that supernatural work of God in your life, being born again. When Jesus talked to a man called Nicodemus who came to him one night and he wanted to know more about what Jesus was teaching. And Jesus said these words, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. And, and Nicodemus went on to ask, what do you mean? How, I can't be born a second time physically. And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about a new start spiritually with God's spirit working in your heart. Supernatural change. Matthew 5, Jesus says the same thing, but he puts it slightly differently. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who have been approved by God. That's what blessed means, to be approved by God. How? Because they are poor in spirit. And this hasn't got anything to do with financial poverty or about being miserable and, and depressed and anything like that. It's about coming to see yourself as God sees you. That's what poor in spirit means here. It's about coming to realize how God views me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The Bible says this, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To be humble before God is another way of saying to be poor in spirit. It's when a person humbles himself before God and says, I am just a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. And I am morally bankrupt and I deserve your wrath and your judgment and your punishment because you are holy and I'm not. It's like the tax collector, the, the parable that Jesus told of the tax collector who were, the tax collectors were the scum of society, they were hated. And Jesus told the parable about the, the tax collector who went to the temple and he, and, he, and he stood there and he said, have mercy on me God for I am a sinner. Jesus said that man went home right with God because he faced up to who he was before God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Entry into God's kingdom, or what we sometimes say or describe as being saved, comes about when a person humbles themselves before God and acknowledges that they need God to save them. And Jesus ends these beatitudes, he begins and ends, he wraps them up with another condition of entry, and it's in verse 10. He says this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he starts it by saying that, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to, or, or entry is gained into it for those who are poor in spirit. And he wraps it up, he ends it by saying, it's because of righteousness. And he specifically goes on to say what that means. Twice Jesus has told us who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. In verse 3, it's those who realize the need of God. They're poor in spirit. In verse 10, it's those who are being persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, because they've pledged their allegiance publicly to Jesus. It's those who are publicly declaring who they belong to. And as a result of that, they get persecuted. So it's not the persecution that gets us into heaven. It's not the persecution that enables us to be in God's kingdom. The persecution comes because we've nailed our allegiance to the flag and we've said publicly, I belong to Jesus. I've asked Jesus to be my savior. And he expands on this in verses 10 and 11 and 12. Uh, look what he says. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is saying when a person has surrendered their life to Jesus, they will start living a righteous life. In other words, a life that pleases God. And Jesus is saying that when we surrender our lives to God, which is demonstrated then and is lived out by a change of the way we live, it's, lived by, it's demonstrated by righteous living or, 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 or right living life that pleases God, then we are blessed. In other words, we found approval with God. So entry into God's kingdom is firstly about realizing our need. It's about humbling ourselves before God and saying, I am a sinner and I, I, I need a savior. And then secondly, it's about pledging our allegiance, not to a flag, but to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Becoming part of God's kingdom, his his saving reign is A, through realizing we need Jesus to save us and asking him to do that, to be our savior. And secondly, through surrendering our lives to him so that he becomes our savior and our Lord. So write that on your outline. If I want to enter God's kingdom, I need to ask Jesus to be my savior and I need to surrender my life to Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian, to be born again, to become a follower of Jesus, to to see God's kingdom. The Bible describes it in all sorts of different ways. It means the same thing, essentially. If I want to enter God's kingdom, I need to ask Jesus to be my savior, and I need to surrender my life to Jesus. But these verses also contain a warning, both for those who've already given their allegiance to Jesus and those who are considering giving their allegiance to Jesus. And maybe this morning you've not yet trusted in Jesus. You've not humbled yourself before him and surrendered your life to him. And maybe you're considering, what are the implications of trusting in Jesus, of becoming a follower of Jesus? You need to know what it will cost you. You will stand out because you will be different. And that will often mean some form of persecution. In fact, the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, writes later on in the New Testament that if anyone lives a godly life, they will be persecuted and we need to ask ourselves if we're not facing some kind of hostility at some level whether or not we're really authentic followers of Jesus that's something for us to think about isn't it Jesus says here that persecution can range from insults just a bit of mickey taking at work all the way on to full physical attacks and everything else in between when we start living lives that please God then we will stand out as being different When we enter God's kingdom, when we've trusted in Jesus, when we've nailed our allegiance to the flag, to to Jesus, as it were, we're going to stand out. We're going to be different. Our values, our morals, our our way of living is going to be different. And and we'll stand out. We don't have to get up on the desk and start preaching at people, but just living out our faith, what it means to follow Jesus. As we live out Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this great sermon on the mount, as we live that out, we will look different. People don't like that. But as unpleasant and as difficult as it is when we're persecuted, Jesus says that we should rejoice because it's a sign that we're authentic followers of Jesus. Nobody wants to rejoice for persecution's sake, but Jesus here is saying, look, rejoice when that happens because of me. Rejoice when you get a hard time from your family or at work because of me. Because that's a sign that we are actually genuine, authentic followers of Jesus. And he says, look, one day you're going to experience great reward When Jesus comes again to rule and reign, we will experience great reward for all that we've done for him. If you're experiencing persecution this morning, it may not be, you may not be getting beaten up, but you may be getting some awkwardness in the family, some difficulties at work or in your class at school, standing out as being different. Jesus says, that's for me, 
and I will reward that. And one day when he comes to rule and reign, he will bring righteousness and justice to that situation. So if you're experiencing persecution this morning, hang on in there. Jesus sees it. He blesses you for it. So verses 3 and 10 are the means of entry into the kingdom, the route to life. The other, bit, the other beatitudes are the descriptions of what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. They're a summary, if you like, of all that follows in the rest of the uh, chapters. Now we can debate what it means to be British until the cows come home, but when you read the beatitudes and the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, then it becomes very clear what a citizen of heaven should look like. The first one is in verse 4. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this isn't about God comforting people who are mourning for a loved one who's died. God does do that, but that's not what Jesus means here. This is about a person mourning over personal and corporate sin. Those who have a godly sorrow when they look at the sin in their lives are approved by God. Blessed are they, Jesus says, because it's only when we mourn over our sin that we realize our need to be forgiven. And the danger is that as followers of Jesus sometimes, even though we may have come to a place where we've mourned over our sin and and, and repented of it and and put our trust in Jesus, we can also easily drift and become blasé to the sin in our life. And we cease to see the greed, the lust, the materialism, the deceit, the envy, and the gossiping that fights for control of our life. So easy, isn't it, to, 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 to drift and find our, our values often being influenced more by worldly values than the kingdom values, the, the values of the kingdom of God. I wonder how you would assess your life this morning as you look at it. Is there pride in who you are or what you are? Or maybe you're just indifferent. Or do you mourn the sin that is such an offense to God? As we take communion together, is there that sense of mourning over my sin? That which put Jesus to death on the cross. Jesus took my sin. Put it upon himself. Do we mourn our sin? But Jesus says here, those that mourn will be comforted. When we're filled with that loathing of sin, we're equally reminded that if we are in Christ, in other words, if we've trusted in Jesus, then he has forgiven us those sins. We mourn, but we'll be comforted. And when God looks at us this morning, he sees us as holy and perfect if we've trusted in Jesus. Our sins should rightly cause us to mourn. But we're greatly comforted when we, when we remember that he has made us holy. That when God looks at me and looks at you this morning, if, if we've trusted in Jesus, he says, clean, pure, holy. The second description is in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is saying that those that will inherit the earth when Christ comes again are the subjects of his kingdom. And as such, God wants them to be meek. Meekness is a, a controlled desire to see the interests of others advance ahead of our own. It's a lifestyle that mirrors Jesus. Jesus in Philippians 2, Paul writes, and he says that he didn't hold on to that which was rightfully his. He didn't pursue his own interests He instead humbled himself and pursued our interests, bringing us back to God as Jesus died there and took on our sin upon himself. And just as that is Jesus' way of living, as as followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom, that's the way we're meant to live. Blessed are the meek. The world says to us, go out and get what we want to exalt ourselves, to push ourselves forward, to look after our interests ahead of everybody else's. Jesus is calling us to see that if we're in Christ, 
There's nothing more of any real value that we can gain. We already have it all. Paul says in in Ephesians, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Can we have that verse up, please? Thanks. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The reward for meekness in this life is the knowledge that those who belong to God's kingdom will gain far more in the life to come than they could ever gain in this life by being self-obsessed and self-centered. Paul says, all things are yours. God has given us everything if we've trusted in Jesus. And in response to that, God wants us to, to those of us who are in his kingdom, he wants us to demonstrate meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is a controlled desire. It's knowing that we're strong, but controlling that strength and using it for the benefit and the blessing of others, as Jesus did. As Jesus did, so we are to do. So we make a deliberate choice to follow that example of Jesus and put the interests of others ahead of our own, seek their good instead of living for our own good. That's what it means to, to live out the standards of God's kingdom as citizens of God's kingdom. The third description of what our lives should look like if we're in God's kingdom is in verse 6. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When we ask Jesus to save us and when we surrender our lives to him God makes us righteous in other words God makes us right with him he says I will give you the perfection the holiness the right standing that Jesus already has I'm going to give that to you so you can be in relationship with me that's one part of righteousness but that isn't the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here what Jesus is talking about here is the righteousness that is a right life it's a kind of right lifestyle kind of right living it's about living in ways that please God It's about saying, well, I am righteous with God, so I'm going to be righteous. Because God has made me righteous in a legal standing sense, I'm going to live that life out. I'm going to be that. It's about living in ways that please God. The more we seek to live as he wants us to live, the more God will enable us to do so. But in doing so, we'll become aware of how much more like Jesus we still need to become. This is what this great paradox The longer we're Christians, the more we grow as Christians, the more we become aware, actually, of our sin, of our shortfalling. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we become aware of his holiness and his perfection and our imperfections. And so when we mourn over that sin, we're comforted because we know we're righteous in Christ. But nevertheless, we should still be striving then to keep moving forward for more of Jesus, to be more and more like Jesus every day. Not to get to heaven, that's through Uh, God's grace, that's a free gift that we get when we trust in Jesus. But having trusted in Jesus, our desire should be to be like him. Jesus is looking for his followers to be people that will hunger and thirst. There's a desperation here. That's the language that Jesus is using. When you're hungry, when you're thirsty, you're desperate for a drink, desperate for food. Jesus wants us to be desperate for more of him, desperate for righteousness. Paul, the man who you could say had sown it had it all sewn up as a Christian. He wrote most of the New Testament. Yet he said these words as a very mature Christian later on in his life. I want to know Christ. Well, surely Paul knew Christ as well as anybody that's ever lived on the planet. Paul says, I want to know Christ because I don't know him as well as I should do. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know him more. I want more of him in my life. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Paul was clearly a, a very Christ-like man. Yet even Paul was still hungering for more of Jesus. I want to know Christ, Paul says. He wanted to know more of Jesus in his life. The challenge for us this morning is this. Are we content with mediocrity? Are we content with mediocrity as Christians? Just kind of bumbling along, getting by. The odd prayer time, read the odd verse, occasionally read a Christian book, turn up at church a little bit. Are we content with mediocrity? Or is there a desperation for more of Christ in our life? Is being like Jesus a goal for your life, for my life? I want to know Christ. I want to know more. I want to be more like Jesus. The fourth description of what our lives should look like if we're in God's kingdom is in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To be merciful is to hold something back that's deserved. People may deserve our revenge, but instead, Jesus is calling us not to seek revenge and instead to be merciful in life. Jesus isn't saying that if we are merciful, then, uh, then God will be merciful to us. He's not saying that's how we get to heaven. That will be salvation by works, God saving us because of what we do. We know that's not how we're saved. We're saved, we get into God's kingdom by our, by our faith in Jesus. It's by God's grace. But what Jesus is saying here is that those who've entered the kingdom of God have realized their utter sinfulness and their total need of God's mercy. And having realized that and having then received God's grace and God's mercy, then they are people who are characterized by mercy towards others. Jesus says elsewhere, you know, we, we can't expect to be forgiven if we then hold, withhold forgiveness to others. One of the very characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a forgiven one, and forgiven ones therefore forgive. We can't really call ourselves a Christian if we don't love our brother and sister in Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that we need to keep in mind God's mercy on our lives, and as we do so, then it ought to drive us towards mercy. When people look at our lives, do they see people full of mercy? Do they see Jesus living and working through us, or, or do they see hard, harsh, unforgiving people? The fifth description of what our lives should look like if we're in God's kingdom is in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If we've trusted in Christ, then we have been made pure. Our, our legal standing before God is, not, is of one not just of guiltless guiltlessness, but also of rightness or righteousness. We're pure. There's no condemnation. We're, we're free. But here, what Jesus is talking about is about our daily living as subjects of the kingdom. He's calling us to choose purity and reject sin when temptations come our way. John says this, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Jesus comes again, we'll be completely transformed and our old natures, what the Bible calls the flesh, will be gone forever. We'll be like Jesus, totally sinless. It's part of what John means here. If we've trusted in Jesus, then we'll be like Jesus when he comes again. But in the meantime, the call is for us to purify our hearts. Now, nothing you can do can ever cause your relationship with God to be severed. Once you are saved, if you've genuinely trusted in Jesus, you are always saved. But you can damage the quality of your, of your relationship. When we allow sin into our lives, we allow barriers to come up between us and God. It doesn't change the fact that we're God's children. It doesn't change the fact that we're saved, that we're forgiven. But those barriers come in between us. And we know it. And when we try and pray, we feel 
we feel rubbish, don't we? Because we know we've messed up. We need to go and put that right with God. Sin damages the closeness of our friendship with God and, and it fades as, as sin gets in the way. And that's why John continues by saying that all who have this hope in him, this hope of seeing him and being changed into his likeness, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The knowledge that we will see the one who is pure face to face ought to drive us on to keep ourselves pure here and now. We are pure, so live pure lives. God has given us a pure identity, so live out the reality of your identity. You know, I don't think I, I know of a genuinely better feeling than knowing that I'm right with God, knowing that, that, that peace and that assurance of knowing that my sins are gone. And, and when I've sinned and throughout the day and I come to God and say, please just cleanse me and clean me once again, that sense of peace, of being in relationship with God, is amazing. Let's be people of God who strive for purity, for holiness, and not let anything get in the way of our relationship with God. If you've got unconfessed sin in your life today, if you're a follower of Jesus, but there's stuff that's come in and made a mess, then today, right now, is the time to deal with that, to confess that, to once again experience God's love and his blessing and his mercy. The sixth and final description of what life in God's kingdom should look like is in verse 9. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. To be called a son of God means that we reflect in some way the character of God. The reward for this lifestyle is both to partake in and to reflect our Father's character. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1.19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And we thought a little bit of that, that today as we've taken communion together. Jesus makes peace. He brings God's enemies, those of us, that's us, we're God's enemies because of our sin. He brings us into relationship with God through his death on the cross. And the subjects of his kingdom, those that have trusted in him, are also to bring about peace in this world. And the greatest way we can do that, yes, we should do all we can, and we're going to look at that in, in coming weeks, what it looks to, to try and make a difference in this world, to bring the standards of the kingdom into this world. We should try and do all we can to make physical peace with individuals, with it, between governments and so on. But the greatest way we will ever bring peace into this world is by sharing the good news of the kingdom. I'm not the world's greatest evangelist by any stretch, but over the years, God has enabled me and blessed me to help a few people find peace with God and forgiveness by trusting in Jesus. And it's a great joy to see how the gospel, the good news of peace, the good news of this kingdom, changes lives, restores marriages, and brings peace into a world of chaos and hurt. You can have all the peace treaties in the world you want, but they don't deal with the root cause of the problem, which is sin in man's heart. And the only way to deal with the root cause is to come to Jesus and have that sin dealt with. That's what brings real peace. Who is God calling you to share the good news, the, the, the gospel, the gospel of peace with? Who has God put in your life at the moment that he wants you to share the message of peace with? So Jesus begins this great sermon in Matthew 5 to 7 by providing a summary in these verses that we've looked at today. He tells us how to enter the kingdom. And then he tells us and summarizes what our lives should look like as we become part of God's kingdom. And we're going to see what that means in more detail in coming weeks. But as we draw a close to a close this morning, there's two things I want to say. Firstly, here's a question for you. Are you 
part of God's kingdom? Are you part of this kingdom? Have you ever acknowledged that you are broken and sinful and that you desperately need Jesus to save you? If you've never done that, then I'm going to give you a mo- an opportunity in a moment, just in, just in the quietness of your own heart, to ask Jesus to save you and then to surrender your life to him. Secondly, for most of us here this morning, perhaps that, that, that's true of us, we've done that. There's a point in our life when we have done that, we've taken that step, but we also know that our lives just so often don't match up to the standards of the kingdom that Jesus would like us to live. Maybe your life doesn't look too like the kind of lifestyle Jesus describes for us in Matthew 5, but you want it to. You want to be more like Jesus. Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for his ways, then you will be filled. I want to encourage you right now to tell God that you are hungry for him, for his ways, and for you to allow him to fill you once more this morning by the power of his spirit. So let's just close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and in the, 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 the sacredness of this moment, or the quietness of this moment, we pray that the Holy Spirit will come and work in our lives. If, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've not entered God's kingdom, if you're not born again, now's an opportunity for you to take that step, to acknowledge your desperately need of God's grace and his mercy, that you're a sinner, that you've offended, deeply offended God, and that you want him to forgive you and change you and make you into a new person through Jesus and to surrender your life to Jesus and to pledge to follow him for the rest of your life and you can do that right now and take that step if you're a subject already of the kingdom that's fantastic but you want to know more about Jesus you're hungry for Jesus you're desperate for more then why not just reach out your heart, your, your heart to, to Jesus right now and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you once again with power, with sense of his presence, of God's love. The standards of the kingdom would, would be the beat of your heart to be like Jesus. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he came preaching the good news of the kingdom. Thank you that the kingdom of God is here. It's among us. Thank you that we can know you. We can see you. We can experience you through faith this morning. And one day we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. Just a hunger and thirst for more of Jesus, we pray. Just to live out the radical manifesto of the kingdom of God. Just to surrender our lives to you today, we pray in Jesus' name.